Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Hey, good morning, New Covenant. Perfect timing for that song, I've Witnessed It. We're going to be taking a look at a couple witnesses today in the book of Revelation. Before we do, let me note that being a witness, especially in a high-profile court case, can be quite dangerous, especially if you're witnessing against, say, a cartel or a gang or the mob. It can put you in grave danger. They could put a hit out on your head. And so, therefore, many times these folks that witness against these people have to go into what we call the Witness Protection Program. Today, we are taking a look at God's Witness Protection Program. And again, note that it can be dangerous for us as believers to be witnesses today. Uh, Myself and my family have gotten to get just a small taste of it, nothing compared to what these two witnesses will go through. But uh, we used to live, oh, about an hour away from uh, the Mexican border when we lived in San Diego. And we would go down at least once a month for missions trips down there. And we almost never got down there without having fairly decent amounts of money extorted from us or uh, much of our construction supplies and tools because we were going down there to build houses, build an orphanage, plant a church. And uh, we only had a couple of times where we had a couple of guys get locked up in a detention facility. It would typically last about a day before they would get released. But we got at least a little small taste of what it was like to be a witness for Jesus. And it was a little dangerous. Um, Also down there in San Diego, we would take part in the month of March for something called the March for Life. And during the March for Life, um, those that were pro-life, those of us that were out there standing for babies and being a voice for the voiceless and defenders of the defenseless, a lot of our pro-death fellow friends would drive by in cars and they would take those plastic dolls that, you know, the limbs only move like up and down, but they're really hard. And they would take the heads off of those and they would throw them at us at high speeds while they're driving by in the car. And so we got another little small taste of what it meant to stand for Jesus and get a little bit of persecution. And then many of you may or may not know that the reason that my wife and my daughters and I ended up here in Albuquerque is because I, for the most part, lost my job where we were at, and it was because of what happened within a denomination that we were a part of. And um, I had to decide as a pastor and a husband, as a daddy, that we stand on God's literal word that he actually did make us in six days. He created us. He actually has literal promises for his chosen people and for the church. And then there were some other things that were creeping into the church via that denomination, things like the woke movement and acquiescing a little bit on the stance on marriage between one man and one woman. And eventually myself and a bunch of those that were on our staff had to say we couldn't stay underneath this authority. And so everything in um, everything that we had, so the building, which was a $6 million property and 29 acres of land and both vans and about a half million dollars that were in the bank all went away. And so there was about 13 of us that just didn't have a job and wondered how are we going to make it? Well, I say that in uh, kind of a happy note, we witnessed God work. Uh, We witnessed a group of believers that said we're going to do whatever we have to do in order to stand for the Lord Jesus, regardless of what it costs us. And God has been so good. That's how we ended up in Albuquerque. Not the road that necessarily we wanted to take, because I had to look at my wife and daughters and go, guess what? We're losing everything. And we're moving. And at that time, we had no idea where. We knew nothing about Albuquerque. We didn't even know how to spell it. So... (laughs) 
Then uh, the Lord ends up moving us here, and I will tell you now that next week is our nine-month um, anniversary here. We would not change it for the world. So we're so thankful for how God has worked and, and what he's done, and so we are, uh, we're happy to be here. Now, all that being said, we still might get to a point where, as a church body, where we're at right now, the remnant that God has called out to be a witness for him, just like the two witnesses in Revelation, it might get really costly really soon. And so again, we have to ask ourselves this question as we study through Revelation, are we okay with being like the two witnesses that we're about to read about and what could potentially happen to us as those that stand upon this rock-solid word, the word that never changes? Remember, if we build our lives upon the rock, we're set and secure. That doesn't mean things are going to go the way we want them to, but we do not have to, to change with the shifting sand because what God's word doesn't change. In fact, I love what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad that in the midst of all the craziness and all of the weird change that Jesus doesn't ever change? I'm thankful for that. Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles? We're going to take a look at two witnesses. Revelation chapter 11, we're doing verses 1 through 14 this morning. And if you wouldn't mind, as we witness to Jesus, would you stand with me? As we read verses 1 through 14, John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Thanks, gang. As John writes to his hearers and as we get to read this, the one thing that we don't want to miss this morning is that we are called to faithfully witness to God's awesome glory. But we have to do it while we wait for him to vindicate us with his righteous justice. Let me say that again. We are called to faithfully witness. You and I are called to go out into Albuquerque, into New Mexico, into our beloved country and go tell everybody that we meet about Jesus. And things may come against us that we don't like. We might even get killed for our faith someday. But we wait patiently for Jesus to vindicate us with his righteous judge, justice and judgment. 
And there's good news. That time is coming. Right now, God has remained gracious and patient. But eventually, God will say enough is enough. Now, before we get too deep into this, let me remind us that just a few weeks ago, we had talked about where we're in the middle of what we call a parenthesis or a break in the action. So if we'll go back and we'll just kind of review what Revelation has been all about. Revelation chapter 1 is looking back at who Jesus was predominantly at his first coming. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 speak to the church age. And it literally wrote about seven literal churches that you would have traveled across that postal route. And if a letter was being delivered by Jesus to each one of those churches, that's the the route that he would have went. And in that we studied how there are certain things as a church that we want to quit doing or don't do. And then there are other things that we want to keep on doing that the Lord Jesus will reward us for. So we had some great lessons there. Then by the time you get to Revelation 4, the bulk of Revelation 4 through 22 is all future tense. These are events that have yet to happen. When we get to Revelation 6 and this big chunk that we're in of Revelation 6 through 19, we're taking a look at what we call the great seven-year tribulation. In Revelation chapter 6, we started with the first uh, seven seal judgments which is the beginning of God's pouring out his wrath, but then we stop. And remember, we took a break in Revelation 7, and we take a look at this remnant that God has raised up, the 144,000 in Revelation 7, before getting back into the action in Revelation 8 and 9, where God begins to unleash the trumpet judgments. Then you get to Revelation 10, and now we've got a big break. Revelation 10, all the way through chapter 14, are again what we call a parenthesis before the action picks back up in Revelation 15, and that's where the the bowl judgments will begin, the most severe of all God's judgments. But again, remember, he unleashes or unpacks those judgments slowly, all the while giving people a chance to repent and turn to God. This is going to be a happier morning because in this passage, it's one of the very few times where after seeing God's judgment poured out, people actually turn around and glorify and worship God. That's the end of the message, so pretend like you didn't hear that yet. For now, what I'd like to do is break this down into three smaller chunks, and we're going to take a look at what it means to live powerful lives. Now, if you would, look at your notes, if you've got them. We're going to take a look at living powerful lives in Jesus, not for Jesus. I want to be careful of our vocabulary. There's nothing that you and I can do for Jesus. We do everything that we do in the power of Jesus. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I can't do anything for Jesus. So why did Jesus even make me? Simply because he loves us and he wants to be glorified by those that he made. So let's take a look. What does it look like to live a powerful life in Jesus? Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2 says this, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, everything that we're going to take a look at this morning is is going to all be about remembering. I don't know about you, but my little dull mind forgets a lot of times just how big God is just how amazing God is. When things go wrong, I tend to look at the obstacles instead of looking at the obstacle mover. I forget to take a look at Jesus, the one who can not only move mountains, but the one who made the mountains in the first place. So I don't have to keep my eyes fixed on the very things that are coming up against us. I keep our eyes fixed on the very one who is for us, and that's Jesus. So I need to remember God's sovereignty 
over all things. There's another one of those big churchy words. What does sovereignty mean? It means that he's got all power over all things in all places at all times. There's nowhere that you or I can go where we can get outside of God's ownership, God's power. Now, that being said, it seems strange that the first thing that Jesus tells John to do is start taking measurements of the temple. Why am I whipping out my craftsman tools and starting to take measurements of all this stuff? Well, don't miss what God's doing here. He's making John aware, and all of us that read this letter, of the fact that he's in control of every event in human history. I love what Jen said earlier, but she said, do you know that God is a God of minute details? He even knows the number of hairs on your head. Well, measuring the temple, God telling John this, makes him aware of the fact that God is aware of everything that happens in all of human history down to the minutest of details. It also symbolizes ownership over it. God's saying, I I own this, and I own all of those that are a part of it. Now, it's worthy of noting that God says, don't measure the outer court. That belongs to the nations, to the unbelievers. They've rejected me, so I've rejected them. Now think about this for a moment. One of the big pushbacks or arguments that we have gotten, I know I have gotten many times from unbelievers, is how could a loving God send so many people to hell? To which I would respond, this loving God that you speak of is just simply giving people exactly what they've been asking for. They don't want him. If they don't want him this side of heaven, why would they want him for all of eternity? So God has given them exactly what they've wanted. Here's the problem. Once we get what we think we wanted, we realize that we really didn't want it. Think about how many places, how many arenas of life we have told God, I don't want you there. I don't want you in my family. I don't want you in our schools. I don't want you in our politics. I want you out of all of that. And God, as the gentleman that he is, has graciously stepped back and said, okay, then I will get out of your family. And I will get out of your schools and I will get out of your politics. And now we look around and go, is this what we really wanted? The scales have now been tipped. More marriages actually end up in divorce than they do death do us part. Uh, The scales have been tipped big time, especially in the areas of statistics when it comes to drug use, when it comes to what people would quote as unwanted pregnancies, when it comes to depression rates in our country. Those things have all skyrocketed as the years have gone by. Now, I'm no dummy, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist either, but I would tell you that as I take a look at the direction that things have gone, the more we have kicked God out of all these different arenas and areas that we just talked about, the more we have seen chaos ensue. And you and I as a church have been given the great privilege to be witnesses to the power and the work of what Jesus can do. We're going to talk more about this in a moment, but did you know that you serve a God who is in the business of bringing dead things back to life? So it's n- all is not lost. All hope is not lost. Now that being said, Scripture tells us things are going to get worse. Until the time that Christ returns, things are going to get worse. However, for those of us that are believers in Jesus, all is not lost. In fact, the victory has already been secured. Now we just need to live in that. Let me take us into verses 3 through 6. 
And again, we're going to have another reminder here of just how good God is to us. But he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike them with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Let us not forget this. Remember, God always empowers his people for the service that he's called them to do. He's never going to call you to do something that he hasn't gifted you and empowered you to do. Now, are you going to shoot fire out your mouth? Well, it depends on how much sriracha you put on your burrito, but most likely not. However... God did give us his word, he gave us prayer, he gave us the church to engage in this battle together. Those are mighty weapons in the hand of our Lord. Don't ever underestimate the power that is within this book that we hold in our hands, that we have the privilege of picking up and reading every day. Don't ever forget the power that's in prayer as our God works and moves. Don't ever forget what the Holy Spirit can do in and through people that are sold out for Jesus. Don't forget those things. Those are the very things that the Lord can do. Don't forget that he empowers his people for service. Now, I want to stop. I know many of you are asking right at the beginning of verse 3, well, he just said two witnesses. Who are these people? Scripture doesn't actually ever tell us exactly who these two are. So I'm going to tell you who I think they are, and then I'm going to tell you how I came to that conclusion. And it's just going to simply be based off Scripture. If I'm wrong, who cares? So, Here's who I think that it is. I think it's Moses and Elijah. And I'll share with you why. There's really five reasons. Just like Moses and Elijah were allowed to strike the earth with plagues and they were empowered by God to keep it from raining, the two witnesses could do the exact same thing. Here's an even bigger reason. This comes straight from Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, and then Malachi chapter 4, Verses 5 through 6 both tell us that the Jews expected both Moses and Elijah to return at some time in the future. I'm guessing this is where they returned. The third reason that I think it's Moses and Elijah is that both of them were present. Y'all remember Jesus' transfiguration? That's, That's a little mini glimpse of Jesus coming back in glory at the second coming. And if y'all remember, Peter looks up and goes, Hey, Jesus, should I make tents for you and for Moses and Elijah? Now, I love that question because just a little side note, little side rabbit trail. I've had people ask me before, hey, pastor, when we get to heaven, do you think we're going to recognize our loved ones? Well, Moses and Elijah have been dead for a long time by the time Peter comes on the scene, and yet he recognizes them immediately. So my answer is, I don't think we're even going to recognize just our loved ones. I think we're going to recognize all kinds of people. How is that going to be possible? Well, you and I are so used to being limited by our brains. Like, how many of you all just admittedly you have a hard time remembering names sometime? Like, you wake up and you see your kids and you're like, who are you again? I'm supposed to feed you? That's where I'm at sometimes. You know how thankful I am that one day when I stand before the Lord and I get my new resurrection body, I think I'm just going to recognize people. And I'm not going to forget names. How great is that? And if you do forget names, we've got all of eternity to keep asking, so don't worry. Eventually we'll get it down. Well, here's the fourth thing. Moses and Elijah were both given supernatural powers that brought people to repentance, brought them to their knees, and the two witnesses are going to do the same thing. And then lastly, the length of the drought. 
that they were allowed to bring about was exactly the same as that brought by Elijah. James chapter 5 verse 17 speaks to that. Now, I think even more importantly than who these two are is what they're going to do and then what we're supposed to learn from them. So the first thing we see is that they prophesy clothed in sackcloth. They're telling people about the Lord. You've forgotten about Jesus. Let me tell you who he is. And they do it in sackcloth. Why in sackcloth? Well, it was like burlap. It was rough. It should have brought some irritation, but it also symbolized mourning and distress over sin. So let me ask you as a church body, do you mourn over sin? Does it break your heart that right now we have gone a direction that God never intended for his kids to go? Does it break your heart at all as to what maybe our own country is doing to our future generations? Does any of that bother you? Now, there have been lots of solutions for it that I've heard from all over the place. We just need to give people more money. We just need to grant them more education. We just need to give free health care. And again, I'm not saying that those things are bad, but I will reiterate this. When we give people more money, more education, and more health care, what we're really doing is we're making richer, smarter, healthier sinners that still don't know Jesus. Because it's only the gospel. It's only Jesus that's actually going to change destinies. It's only that that's going to change people's minds, will, and actions. So John also shows us that these two witnesses, they have power over death. They have power over drought. They have power over disease. Again, we aren't necessarily given those, those weapons, those abilities. But on the flip side, we are given God's word in its entirety. We can go out and we can share it. We can pray over people and then we can see eternal destinies change. So while we may not have the power over things like drought and disease and death, God gives us the ability to go out and share the gospel and we don't get anybody saved. We don't save a single person. God does the work, but we get to be witnesses of dead things coming back to life. How exciting is that? If anything is going to fire us up, that should be it. So this passage just showed us that God is going to empower his people for the specific service that he's called us to. Now, verses 7 through 14 is our biggest chunk. And it's in this big chunk that we see that God guarantees victory in him. This is our our last point here, but remember that God guarantees victory in him. We're going to break this down little by little in just a moment. But I want to make you aware of something. Did you know that the victory has already been secured? Listen again to verses 7. Well, let's start with verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That doesn't start off well, but we don't have anything to be worried about because just as the great missionary to Africa, his name was David Livingston. If you don't know who he was, great story of a man who gave his life so that people would hear the gospel message of Jesus. He said this, I am immortal until my work is accomplished. Until God has finished with him, he's immortal. Nobody can touch him. You and I are also immortal. God says that until your time is up and his will has been accomplished in your life, nothing can touch you. Once your day is up and it's numbered, it doesn't matter how good our medical system gets, how much medication there is, your time is done. God will tell you it's time to come home. Now, In this passage, we also read once of 36 different times in the book of Revelation where the beast that kills these witnesses is talked about. 
We are going to dive deeply into this beast in Revelation chapter 13. So hold on for about three or four weeks, and you will get a lot more insight on, on who this beast is, who the Antichrist is. If we move on to verses 8 through 10, it says, Their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. First of all, Sodom and Egypt are the epitome of immorality and idolatry. Sodom was known for its grave sexual immorality. And Egypt was known for the worship of a pantheon of gods. Now their dead bodies being left in the street were a sign of humiliation, especially for Jews. Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. Those that don't get a proper burial are actually being mocked. Their enemies would oftentimes leave them dead in the streets to show the world how they had conquered them. But the story turns on evil. This is what I love about Scripture. We don't have to wonder whether or not God wins out. The victory is already secured. Listen to this. He said, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Do you know that we live in a world of fear? Now, y'all may think, well, it's scary to go out and share the gospel. Did you know that darkness is always afraid of the light? Because light always illuminates, light always wins out. Think about that for a moment. Satan is terrified of what Jesus is capable of. He knows he's lost. Remember, Satan's a theologian. We're going to be learning a whole lot more about that in chapter 13. Satan is a theologian. He knows that his time is short. He knows what Jesus is capable of. He knows what Jesus has already done. So he is going rampant right now. He's going crazy. So the more the world seems to be plunging headlong into sin and freaking out, it's because of Satan knowing that his time is short. The demonic world knows their time is short. The lake of fire awaits them. Again, we will get more into this, but when we take a look at hell, please don't buy into the hallmark ideas or the cartoon ideas of Satan is down there with a pitchfork reigning and ruling in hell. He is just as much a captive as all the rest of the demonic world. He is a cherubim angel. He does not measure up to God. He will not be reigning and ruling in hell. He himself will be cast into the lake of fire, just like the Antichrist, just like the false prophet, just like all those that reject Christ, along with the rest of the demonic world. He's not ruling there. God is ultimately completely and totally in control of all things. He only can do what God allows him to. Now listen to verses 12 and 13. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. That is a great note to end this passage on. Hey, listen. They wouldn't give the two witnesses a proper burial, so God buried 7,000 of them. God's righteous justice vindicated those two witnesses, and he's going to do the same for all of us. And this is one point, one of the very few times that we actually read about, especially in Revelation, where they got terrified, and instead of shaking their fist at God, they gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Let that encourage you. There are going to be times where people are going to shake their fist at God, want nothing to do with the message, the gospel message that you just shared. And then there are going to be other times where some people will actually come back to you and say, thank you for having the courage to share the good news of who Jesus was with me. Thank you for allowing my eternal destiny to be completely changed. It happens. Believe it or not, people will actually hear the gospel message and they will trust in Jesus. Will some reject the gospel message? Yes. I refrain from saying, well, they reject you. They're not rejecting us. We tend to think that way. Well, I want to be careful because then they're going to reject me and then I'm going to lose a friend. Listen, I would rather, quote unquote, lose a friend, but have them hear the gospel than just smile at them all the way to hell. So let's be those bold witnesses. Let's be those two. As we live out the principles of those two witnesses, let us remember this week, God is sovereign over all things. God always empowers us for the service that he's called us to, and God guarantees the victory for those that are in Christ. As a result of those three things, I am hoping and I am praying that we will faithfully witness to God's awesome glory while we wait for him to vindicate us with his righteous justice. Are we ready to give Albuquerque Jesus? I'm praying that we are. I'm praying that that is the church body that we are. Let me pray for us, and then I'm just going to give you a couple of real quick instructions uh, for what's going to happen for our family fun day. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we just come before you, and again, we praise you as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. You are holy and completely different from anything in all of creation. Lord, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You are the author of life. You are the one that determines when we were conceived, when we are born, and when we will go home to be with you. And Lord, we're so thankful that because of the fact that you are in control of all of those things, that we are immortal until you call us home. And so, Lord, may we leave this place remembering that. May we leave this place remembering that you have called us to live powerful lives in you, Jesus, that there is nothing that we can do for you, that all of the four is directed at us, that you have done everything for us. You created us for your glory. You died for us for your glory, and you rose again for us for your glory. And so may we bring you the honor and the glory that you deserve today. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.